0: Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, October 17th. We are here live. It is time for the Power Hour. We've got the team here from Pittsburgh Power, Pete and Leroy and Bruce. We've got some calls coming in already, so it looks like it's going to be a busy day. We're just going to get right to it. Let's, Let's bring in this is probably Bruce. Bruce, good morning.
1: Good morning, Kevin. I was going to talk about... Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay. I was going to talk about the past and what trucking was like when I got into it in 1969. Wow. But more so whenever I got when I got into the business, the engine business, in December 1st of 1977. Got it. But 1969, we had NH250s, and that's an 855 cubic inch, small cam engine, with no turbocharger. Naturally aspirated. Right. Wow. And I was with Motor Freight Express, they were based out of York, Pennsylvania, with their main shop in Baltimore. And we were not allowed to send the drivers over the Pennsylvania Turnpike. They had to run the humps, which was Route right 22. Ooh. And Ooh. anybody that was on Route right 22 years ago, it was brutal. It's much, much better today. They've in, uh, they've leveled some of the mountains. They've made four lanes where it was just a two lane road it was brutal hey um, hey bruce let me was only special cases. Uh, go ahead yeah let me go back just a second
0: because i want you to go a little earlier into the story so your first exposure to the trucking world was not in a shop it was a trucking company um, but you were a real gearhead at the time i mean you know the oh, you were racing absolutely. and yeah um, so you would That's, have been interested in the trucks right away The equipment.
1: I had a 66 Corvette convertible and I had an accident with it and I had cut the fenders off. I had the radiator in it and I took one headlight, hung it with a coat hanger right in the middle (laughs) because I worked, I was midnight (laughs) talk and that's how I went to and from work. Remember the old streetcars with the one headlight in the middle? Yeah. Well, that's what I looked like coming down a highway. There you go. I went to work that way. So anyway, I met my first owner-operator in 1969. He came in in a cab over Chevrolet. Wow. And I was blown away because, you know, I was a Chevy guy. Yeah. And they, they, uh, the union dock in said, here comes the gypsy. Oh, boy. I said, what are you talking about, gypsy? Well, he's a gypsy. He's taking our freight. I said, what are you talking about? He's bringing us Red Wing shoes from Minnesota. Uh, Maybe he's a guy who owns his own. I said, that's pretty. What's wrong? And wore a beautiful hat and buckle and boots.
0: I'm not sure what just happened, but something went wrong with your audio. It's clipping like half of your sentences.
1: Anyway, he came walking in and uh, introduced himself, and he was a very pleasant man, and he was dressed nice, and he was thin, and his truck was clean, and he showed me through the truck, and uh, that was my very first owner-operator that I met, Wow! I was delighted with the guy, so so anyway, my, then we went on from there. I spent nine years in traffic and transportation, and then through a water ski club and racing corvettes, I met Chuck Passmore, and he owned Diesel Injection. And he did Cummins fuel pumps and injectors, occasionally a water pump. He offered me the business in 77 because he wanted to move to Tampa, Florida. Wow. And I took it, knowing knowing not nothing about it. He said, if you take what you know about Corvettes and turn it into diesel engines, you'll do just fine. And I said, bring me some manuals. And he brought me some Cummins manuals, and I started reading them. I read Hugh McGinnis' book on turbochargers and became fascinated with turbos. And December 1st, 1977, Chuck goes to Florida, and I had this little storefront uh, just north of Pittsburgh. and Rent was $100 a month, and that included (laughs) natural gas.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: And I, I didn't even have a telephone. I had a payphone. Wow. And I had a toaster. Not a toaster oven, a toaster. And that's where I would heat my sandwiches. And uh, that was it. That was the start of it. What a great story. And the beauty of it, the Route 28 northbound was closed. So all the trucks that hauled coal into the power plants north of me had to come across the 62nd street bridge and make a left turn and go right past my shop. So I made this little sign up, cons, fuel pumps, injectors, turbochargers, water pumps, and people would stop. And a guy by the name of Leo Natick had uh, his two sons in trucking and and uh, he he would come by and he bought an air compressor, and it didn't work, and he and I took it apart, and we fixed it and made it work, and then one day, he carried a turbo in, and we took it apart, and he would stay there for several hours with me, and we would talk. He was like a guardian angel. He was from Clinton Township, out by the Greater Pittsburgh Airport, and I really took a liking to that man, and, uh, and we went from there. A year and a half later... Uh, the owner wanted the building, so then I moved to Harmer, which was one mile north of the turnpike, where we stayed for 29 years. But we worked on NH250s, and then there was a the custom torque and power torque 270s. The custom torque was built on a 250 block. The power torque was built on the NPC block, which had suitcase-style water pump and had piston-cooling nozzles. And then we had 335s. And if you had a big hammer, you had a small cam 350. <laughs> that was the big hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then in the, the that year, around December, come started to release the big cam engine. And the difference was the diameter of the camshaft plus small cam versus big cam. And the reason they went to the big cam. To increase the horsepower, they needed to inject more fuel. And the small cam the lobe was big on the cam that it was would come around and slap on the roller that worked the injector. And you can't have a roller slapping and bouncing on and off a camshaft; it's just going to kill the cam. So they went to the larger diameter camshaft to keep that roller from bouncing on that camshaft. And then. We went from there. It was two nineties, three fifties, four hundreds, and we started to increase the flow. Started that with a three thirty-five. Chuck Passmore would do the pumps and the injectors in Tampa, Florida, and ship them to me and. The stock injector flow on a 335 was 183 cc's every 1,000 strokes, and Chuck would make them 185. I said, you you, you really think a, an owner-operator can feel those two cc's? He saw oh, yeah, it makes a little difference. Hmm. Then he'd give the fuel pump a little more pressure. So I said, well, two does good. Let's go five. So instead of 183, we want 185. 188. I'm sorry, instead of yeah, 183. We added five and we went to 188. And all our operators felt that. I said, well, five cc's will do that. Let's do 10 cc's. <laughs> and so we went up to 193. And my garage was outside. I worked outside for the first couple of years under a tarp. I'd take Viz Queen and I'd take Vice Grips and wrap tape around it, the, uh, the jaws, and I would clamp it to the sun visor. Open the hood, put a space heater in there, and that was my garage. And the first time we put a set of 193 injectors in was Denny Stitt's A-model Kenworth, and we're going across the Highland Park Bridge. He rolls his foot into the throttle, and he says, oh, my God, it feels like passing gear. <laughs> I said, really? know, I'm 28 years old at the time, 27, 28. And uh, I was shocked. Yeah. It made that much of a difference. Yeah. And so we started doing the same with the 350. And that had a 178A, which means it was 178 cc's at 800 strokes instead of 1,000 because of the bile in, in the injector comparator would only go to 200 cc's, so 178A actually flowed around 220, and so then we would start adding there, and and we were making these um, big cam 350s and small cam 350s, well up into the 400 horsepower, because the steel haulers out of Pittsburgh, we had a lot of steel mills, would put double loads of steel on the trailer. And go to Chicago. That's five hundred miles, and back then they were making two thousand dollars. Yeah, to go to Chicago you- because of the double load, and and that's when we they started to arch the trailers. I think the first arch trailer was done down in West Virginia. They would tie down the back of the trailer and tie down the front and jack up the center and then brace it. They wanted the trailer arch so it. If the trailer was sagging and they're going across the Ohio Turnpike, they'd get pulled over. So with the trailer arched, they didn't get pulled over. And then to get on the Turnpike, we did the the, uh, lift axle. And then I started building mufflers for those lift axles so that when they would dump the air, the attendant at the toll booth wouldn't hear it. (laughs) Now, you could see this trailer (laughs) going up and down about six (laughs) inches. but. You could take and be weighing hundred and ten thousand and get on in less than class eight. And class eight was the highest weight, which was for eighty thousand pounds. So that was all an education. And yeah, uh, we had a lot of fun. We we were we were having fun and our customers were making money. And if you could go up the Mountain on the turnpike, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yep. On the Ohio Turnpike, if you could do 52 miles an hour at 100,000 pounds, Whoa, you were doing good.
0: That was a big thing.
1: Yeah, you're not kidding. Yeah, and that was our goal, was to be 52 miles an hour in and Now we don't even think, you don't even consider it to be a mountain. It and bright, then we started yeah. developing more and more for the big cams, and then around 1987, Pete came on board, and... Gary was with me at the time and uh, we were experimenting. I'd get in there at 5 o'clock in the morning and experiment. with stuff till 8 because at 8 o'clock then people would start coming in and the phones would ring and then we'd close at 5. I'd go home and have dinner and come back at 6 and work till 11 in the shop. Because you can only develop things when you're not being interrupted. And that was all the start of it. Now it all happened. What a What a... So, Long history after
0: that too. And yeah. we still here doing in it today.
1: Nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty four the K series engine, the nineteen liter, came out in nineteen what was it seventy four? No, eighty four. Nineteen eighty four? Wait a second now, let me think. Seventy four sounds before that. Seven was it seventy four P? I know in no. seven
2: you know, seventy eight trucks had Ks in them,
1: so it was before that. Okay. So it was seventy-four, but they were they were very scarce. And then around nineteen eighty, the option, I think, to have a K was twelve thousand dollars. That was a lot of money back then. Yeah, yeah, it was. Diesel fuel when I got started, I think was twenty five cents a gallon. Yeah, sounds about right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been an interesting. Since I started dealing with owner operators, it's been a very interesting life.
0: And that has always been your focus, always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt
1: about that. I found out. I found out after you started meeting owner operators, they were gearheads just like me. And you know, I everything I own had to run good, and. Owner operators were the same way. They appreciated a good truck and the better their truck ran.
0: You know, Bruce, thinking about all the things that have changed over the years, I think the biggest change from my point of view and probably yours might be what you just said. When we go back to, I started just about nine or 10 years after you did Pete, right around the time you did, I bought my first truck in 86, but it was kind of late in the year. Uh, back then, I'm trying to think. I knew a lot of owner operators because that's what I did all day. I was around them. I can't remember one. I really. I'm trying to think. I can't remember one that didn't carry parts and tools and knew how to use them. And that's a big change today. That that is becoming much more rare. Back then, I, I didn't know anybody who didn't do that. Oh, we lost Bruce. Bruce is just gone. Um, Pete Leroy. Good morning, guys. I can hear you, Kevin. Perfect. All right. Um, Leroy, good morning. Good morning. All right. Everybody is present and accounted for. Uh, Bruce, were you done? No. Okay.
1: Let's keep going. I wanted to tell you how I got introduced to turbo boost gauges. Oh, okay. A guy came in, stopped by my shop with a 300 Mach. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm in my first year. He said... I think I'm low on power, and I said, well, I'm just really getting started, and I don't really know anything about a Mac, and I'm still learning about the small Kim Cummins, but I made a phone call to Augie Passu down in Cecil, PA. He had a junkyard, and he also was a Mac dealer, and he was a friend of the guy that I took the business over from, so he became a friend of mine. and. I called him, I said, Augie, I have a guy in here that has a 300 Mac, and he says he's a little low on power. Now, keep in mind, I didn't have a telephone. I had a pay phone, so I had to keep dropping quarters. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm talking to Augie. Augie said, put a boost gauge on, take it for a ride, and if it's got 14 pounds of boost, it's making 300 horsepower. I said, you can tell horsepower from a boost gauge? He said, oh, yeah. That's all I needed to hear. I had boost gauges on everything because <laughs> hardly anything had boost gauges in. Right. And then we would look at engines that were stock. By the way, the 8.3 Cummins that came out in motorhomes, they made 300 horsepower at 15 pounds of boost. The 300 Mach made 300 horsepower at 14 pounds of boost. Okay. So you see the correlation with, right. with different things? So. A small cam 350 and a big cam 350 made 18 pounds of boost. A 400 big cam 400 made 24 and a half pounds. Ah, so that was the start of turbo boost gauges getting into trucks because we were putting them in everything. Yeah, I'll bet. along with pyrometers along with pyrometers in the exhaust in the exhaust manifold so well you know we we we've talked
0: about it but it's been a long time if we go back to mechanical engines between a turbo boost gauge and the pyrometer you could troubleshoot almost everything that would go wrong with just those two gauges you could
1: determine if you had an air problem or Or a a fuel fuel problem. problem yeah
0: and and what else is there mm-hmm. on a mechanical diesel engine? It's air and fuel. Air and Yeah. And
1: I think right right brain, left brain. Yeah. Uh, if you can determine, let's say it's an air problem. If your boost is low and your pyrometers high, you're still getting fuel, but you don't have the boost to burn the fuel, so now you're high heat. You've got an air so Now you know you have an air problem. Right. And if it's the other way around, the boost goes down and the exhaust gas temperature goes down. It takes fuel to make heat, it takes fuel to spin the turbo. You got a fuel. So problem. If they both go down, you got a fuel problem. Yeah. And look at how many people would drive into a truck dealership and say, my is down and not have the gauges right. to tell the people yep. where to, where to start. And now you basically gave the truck dealership or the mechanic an open checkbook, and he gets started. And then, if they don't know about gauges, because the first thing I would do, if a guy came in and had a power issue, I'd put gauges on the truck and we'd take it for a ride. Right.
0: And that was pretty simple and we back used, then.
1: Yeah. And we had a panel of, was it four gauges, Pete, or five gauges?
2: It'd be the fuel pressure fuel restriction boost and pyrometer. So four gauges.
1: Four gauges. And we would drive it up route right twenty eight and we'd come back and uh, that was our portable yeah, dyno. That that was the diagnostic It was amazing. It was amazing how easy it became to fix problems then because you knew where to start. Exactly. So I'm, you know how many people bring a fuel pump in the It has to be rebuilt. This pump needs rebuilt. We'd say, why? Truck's low on power. And? Right. Well, it needs a fuel pump. Uh, How do you know it needs a fuel pump? And we started asking that question because one time a guy came in, bought a fuel pump for Big Kim. A day later, he's bringing it back, and this pump's no good. And why do you say that? It's a $33,000 pump stand at Calibri's pump. Because I didn't gain my power back. I said, well, why do you think it was the pump? What else could it be? (laughs) Injectors. Could be an injector setting. Could be a dirty air filter. Could be a problem in the turbo. Could be a dirty fuel filter. Could be a restriction in the fuel line. Back then, we had to change fuel suction lines every uh, eight years because they would swell shut. So, there was a lot of things it could be. So, anytime somebody came in and just wanted a fuel pump, we asked a lot of questions. I'll bet. Because I don't yeah. want to sell you a fuel pump. I don't want to sell you a fuel pump if you don't really know the problem. That's for sure. Good, Good stuff. Think, you, know, uh, you know how I got uh, Pete and Gary and the other mechanics to not depend on me? How? Truck would come in, truck would come in, and they'd come over to my office and they'd say, We got a truck in. It's low power. I said, Okay, what should we do? All I had to do was one time say put the gauges on, go for a ride. After that, put the gauges on, go for a ride, okay. They'd come back and give me the readings. I'd say, All right, so what should it be? And after they would stare at you, you say, "Okay, this is what it should be, and this is what we have." And this so is so. Where why. do you think we should go? Right. And you only had to do that a couple times, right? And that automatically do it, and it freed me up to do other things. There you go. So, you know, if you don't if you don't teach your employees what you know, you're really strapped to the business. You know, Bruce, real
0: quick on that, just one quick lesson. Um, I have seen people like mid-level managers usually that take the opposite. It's like they want to keep the people under them ignorant. And I think it's just to make themselves look better or they feel threatened by somebody that might take over their job. It's one of the worst kind of employees to have. (laughs) Anybody who thinks that way that wants to protect their own (laughs) ego
1: or their own position is just bad for a company. I watched a guy lose his Texaco gas station. He had like five repair bays in Winter Haven, Florida, because of that. Yep. And uh, and I watched other people lose their business because of that. Yep. And and you can't expand if you do that. You can't grow. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Pete, when Pete came on as a mechanic, what are some of your first stories that you remember, Pete?
2: Well, I started out in the pump room doing pumps and injectors and, and slowly working my way out into the shop. And, you know, it, we, we got into a lot of different stuff, and, and some of it was pretty exciting. Uh, you know, we I repowered a crane. It had a 376 Cummins, which is a V6 Cummins. Oh, a V6? Needed really? They made a V6, yep. Huh. And the key out the back way so it needed a cam it needed rebuilt which meant we had to pull the engine the, the counter bores were bad it was a very dated engine Very used a lot of fuel and we ended up putting a 5.9 in there so that was really a, a fun project working on oddball stuff like that working on cranes and pieces of equipment and um, Got you, to work on some V 12s what's called a seventeen ten. Basically, it's two eight 855s put together
1: in a V twelve configuration. On Pete, okay. do you remember how we unloaded that V twelve?
2: No, so the ones that I worked on were on the back of um, flatbeds. And oh, okay that one. that
1: was uh, that was the well fracking people. Yes, when we we brought in a seventeen ten. And our crane was rated, what was that crane rated for? Three thousand pounds? Thirty five hundred pounds. Thirty five hundred pounds, and what was that engine like six thousand uh-uh. pounds? <laughs> 6, yeah. We picked it up, drove the trailer out from underneath it, loaded lowered it to the floor. And so I made some phone calls. How could we take a crane and double the weight? And they told me they said we actually built a safety factor into it, but you overdid the safety factor, <laughs> and still got away with it. <laughs> we got away with it. Yeah, ignorance prevails sometimes. Sometimes. And, so, AP, were you there when I drug home the cement mixer that had the burnt cab on it? You know, I don't.
2: If I was, I wasn't in the shop working then. I don't recall that. Okay, one. I
1: think it was 1983, going through that bad recession. Forty third Street concrete. Remember the old concrete trucks where you had a single cab, only one guy could fit in it? Oh yeah. hmm I drug one of those home. The cab was all burnt. <laughs> we put a new cab to come out of Orville, Ohio. That was over your way, Orville. Did it did, it, did come it come out of Orville or that? White? No, Orville isn't that where White was? Wasn't White in Orville? Oh boy, that would have been
0: behind, you know, Orville was my first Orville was on my first P and D route. I was in Orville every day. Smucker's is there. Smucker's jelly. They're in Orville. Um, I was thinking though, right down the street from there is a little town called Kidron and there's Kidron body there. They make um, truck bodies and trailer bodies. And I think they do a lot of small reefers for straight trucks. Um, I do not remember anything like that being in Orville. Must have been before my time. And I started running Orville in like 1987. Would have been
1: when I was down there every day. This would have been, been eighty three, eighty four, and, huh. and the guys in the shop just shook their head. What did you bring that home for? I said, <laughs> we're in a recession. Do you want to work? There you go. It's work. That's right. Right. It's nuts and bolts and wiring. And and we put a cab on it and did all the wiring and it worked. It worked just fine. Wow. And so you, you never knew what I was going to be dragging <laughs> in the shop just to keep things going. Got to pay so, the bills. That's right. You know. So what else, Pete? Pete, you were there when we got the call from the guy in uh, Burton on Trent, England. Yeah, that was 92 of yes. a thousand horsepower PC to do European road racing?
2: Yes. Yep. No, I was part of that build as well. That was fun. I remember one fun. time, morning, it might, 90 or 91, when things started to slow down when Kuwait got invaded, you'd brought in a um, Mac cement truck with a Mac engine in it. I, I rebuilt that. That was a pretty fun project. And that was a, what were they, 71 MAX? That sound right? Uh, is, that,
1: is that the one we painted gold?
2: Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I, I think I saw a picture. to the dry liner because the NTC bringing off the liners and I remember having a tough time getting that liner out. But I remember we were slow so you brought it in and we called it a spark plug, meaning it would spark business, which it did. We got busy after that. <laughs> so go a spark,
1: spark plug. But yeah, we, we would, never uh, gave up.
2: Take on whatever we needed to take time.
1: So this thousand horsepower N T C the guy called me. He was in his Mercedes on a bag phone in Germany and he called me and said I want a thousand horsepower N T C for racing in Europe. I said, Well, how did you get my name and number? He said, I called the Cummins factory in Columbus, Indiana, oh. and they said, if anybody can do it, you can do it. I said, oh, wow. Yeah. That's quite a compliment. Sure is. But I said, we're between seven and 800 horsepower. I don't know where I'm going to find another 200. And, uh, but here we are in 1992 during that bad recession. I was taking credit cards to the bank and getting cash advances to make payroll, and Checks, checks bouncing coming into us, our checks bouncing every other day at the bank, begging them, don't bounce my checks. I'll, I'll make sure I get the money in tomorrow. It was, <laughs> it was brutal. Yeah. It was a brutal recession. Yeah. And so uh, I said to him, I said, well, send me a check for $8,000 and we'll get started on the engineering. Two days later, FedEx brought me a check. Wow. $8,000. I said, well, this guy's serious. Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't have a dyno or anything. We did have our pump and injector machine, the same one that we currently have. And we got started, and I took it over, hauled the engine over to Cummins in, uh, what time was that in Ohio? The Cummins dealership's not there anymore. John Lorenz was the shop foreman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Strasburg. surprised. Strasburg, Ohio. Okay. Stras- yeah. you, you know where Strasburg is, right?
0: Yeah. I, I'm not surprised that it took you a while to remember the town, but you never forget the person and their name and their personal story. Uh, you could probably tell us what his dog's name
1: was. No, but I can tell you <laughs> the first time I got there, I saw these black streaks. He had a chassis dino and an engine dino. I saw these black streaks going on across the parking lot. From the dual wheels and almost into the creek, and I said, "What happened here, John?" And he said, "The chains broke. Oh, fortunately, fortunately, I had my foot close to the brake, or we would have been in the creek." Wow, I said, "Wow, yeah. that's why you don't ever stand in front of a truck that's on a chassis dyno. Never ever stand there." Good advice. So, John, we had a dual. Aftercooler on this thing, you know, it was water to air. And we were up over a 1,000 horsepower on Cummins, Dino, in Strasburg. And bam, I thought, oh, my God, the explosion was really loud. And I'm expecting to see pistons coming out of the You're brake. Right. And we run in there, and here, my design of the dual aftercooler blew up like a football. Really? <laughs> and exploded. Yeah, it exploded. So we uh, loaded the engine back on the trailer, brought it home, and we put a single after cooler on it and uh, had our 4-series whole set turbo on. We knew that we were over 1,000 horsepower, but we didn't, didn't know the top, but the estimate was 1,200. So we shipped it to, to England, the Burton-on-Trent England, and he put it in the truck. And he called me up and said, I got a problem. I said, uh-oh, what's that? He said, "I keep, these are single-axle cab overs, right? Right. He said, I can't keep the back tires from spinning on the straightaway. How much horsepower did you get me? I said, well, we know it was over 1,000, but the, the estimate is 1,200. Wow. So he, he took it to race, and we scattered two compressor wheels on the turbo. And John Walco and I talked about it, and he knew the company Extrude Hones. And the one uh, engineer there used to race Corvettes with us, so off to Extrude Hone we go. And they honed the wheel for us with their putty with the grit in it. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we offer that wheel to this day, and we've never had one explode because it changed the molecular structure of the aluminum. Wow! Makes so, the wheel so pretty; they would, they would make beautiful candlestick holders for on a table. There you go.
0: What? How much but, boost,
1: um, Bruce? We were well over the fifty mark. Wow! So, the turbos at that time were supposed to be able to do 5.2 or 5.5 times atmospheric pressure and we exceeded it hmm. but ken won seven out of eight races in 93 and we won the european road racing championship with that engine and we didn't have the money to fly over to watch our engine run around the uh right the right track. What so, a,
0: yeah what a great story
1: Then he called me several years later, and he said, I'm going through a divorce. I'm shipping this truck to the island of Malta. I said, where is that? He said, south of Italy. One time I got a call call from a, a guy on the island of Malta. I said, are you Italian? He said, "No, we're Maltesians." <laughs> oh, okay, I mean, we're hey, we're country boys from Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Who ever yeah. heard of the yeah. island of Malta? Yeah. And places like that.
0: Yeah, we're we're pretty God sure we like, can't we can't even we? find Italy on the map, much less Malta.
1: Yeah. Right. And I was raised in a farm and coal mine community. Right. Two lane roads and 35 miles an hour. I didn't even have a traffic light in my township where I was raised. So, Bruce, uh,
0: funny, funny the should...
1: diesel engine business opened the world to
0: me. Yeah, sure did. Funny, you should mention towns with no traffic light. To this day, um, I was just thinking about this the other day. It, Cascade Locks, you've been here. We don't have a traffic light in this town, not even one, uh, mm-hmm. but we do have mm-hmm. two breweries. They weren't here when you were here. We have two big breweries in town now, Uh, big for a a micro brew, Uh, pretty good sized buildings, restaurants. Um, And then I got thinking across the river in Washington is where we do like grocery shopping because it's slightly bigger than our town. They don't have a single traffic light in town. And then the next town up is Carson, which is we just bought some property outside of Carson. They don't have a single traffic light. Three towns right here, no traffic lights. But... There's a combined five breweries in those three towns. Obviously, um, beer is much more important to us than traffic lights.
1: Mm -hmm. That's right. So along comes 1998, the computer engines, the N14, select, select plus. How do we get more performance? Wait, what year did you say? 90, Ninety-eight is when we started on the power box. Okay, the Pittsburgh got it. Power box. Right. The, the electronic engines came out in around 94,
2: 95. 85. In 90. 91. So on Wait, the N14. Uh, the oh,
0: Cummins, right. N14. But Detroit, yeah. I think, Detroit was, was in 85. Of- Maybe even a little, um, it yeah. was right there somewhere. It may have even been 83 or 84, but 85 was the Series 60. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Pete Linden, on the four and a quarter C Cat and the mechanical, that was available up until 94?
2: Correct. Uh-huh. Okay. Um,
1: That's what I, I thought. I went and looked
0: at a Cat in 95. That had the first electronics on it. It was, you know, the throttle was not a mechanical throttle. It was throttle by wire. Um, I almost bought three of them. There there were three identical trucks for sale. I think they might have been Fords, if I remember right, with these cats in them. And I drove it and it was awful. The the it felt like there what? was no connection between your right foot and that engine. Their first version of throttle by wire was just horrible.
1: That was the peak engine. Okay. I think that's what I don't. It. I don't remember anything we, about we were, it because we, I didn't we, buy them. We became a Marmon dealer in 1990, and we had one of those. And it smoked so bad we would smoke out <laughs> the Allegheny Valley when we would start that truck. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was wasn't hard to drive. Too bad, for- yeah. So ninety eight I get with Mark Chapel, the Cummins Performance Engineer, and and uh, I said, We gotta come up with a way to get performance out of these N fourteens and he got a hold of Bob Atherton, who had built the first computer for I think Cummins and Caterpillar and he worked with Detroit and Greg Head who is a software engineer who's worked all over the world we still have Greg Head Bob Atherton we lost this past year at 94 95 years old he was still working and doing electronics with us up until the day he passed but um Gary Soloway loaned us a truck with an M14. He brought it in from Boise, Idaho. He drove it to Columbus, Indiana. We had no dyno. I had three engineers in the bunk and I'm driving this truck in the back streets of Columbus, Indiana. We had a bundle of wires about two inches in diameter coming out from under the hood through the vent window across the passenger seat into the bunk and they had all their monitors in the bunk. And that's how we started on the first Pittsburgh power box. Yeah. And then we, we found the dyno at Stoops Freightliner in Indianapolis. And the fellow that ran the dyno was of German descent and super clean guy. And Stoops agreed to let our engineers and me work in their diner room so long as their guy was operating everything. And uh, I had to get high limits on the credit card because Stoops kept the credit card number and the engineers would go there. And we never knew how many thousands we were going to owe each month to research and development on that power box. I'll bet first one was for an 1844, 460, and uh, 14. And then we did the 2025 Select Plus, and that was a little bit of a challenge. And then an owner-operator with a Caterpillar, E-model Cat, came into my office from Indiana, Pennsylvania. He said, I want you to build me a firebox box for my cat. I said, well, first of all, we don't work on Caterpillars. And second of all, don't know anything about it. And he said, well, I'm not leaving your office until you build me one. I said, well, oh, you may be sitting here a long time. <laughs> so, Stoops Freightliner had a used truck with a Caterpillar, and they let us use it. And several months later, we had the first cat box. And I think the very first one went to Upper Marlboro, Maryland. I went to Mike Robinson. I'm trying to think. Pete what was that fellow's name. He still has his triaxial dump trucks.
2: I, I know you're t- who you're talking about. I can't remember his name. Yeah.
1: Um, anyway, Mike Robinson brought him to our shop. The second one went to an Apple hauler. To Yakima, Washington, hauled apples in New Jersey. That's where all the that apples box come from. Ran, and that box ran for a million eight hundred thousand miles. Wow. Eight hundred and seven thousand. And it failed. He called me and he was in a panic. <laughs> and he said, I'm loaded with apples for New Jersey. I said, Well you've got a five fifty cat. And he said the same thing a guy that was in Detroit with a five and a quarter Cummins when his box failed at well over a million miles, he was loaded for Miami. They both said the same thing. Oh, you don't understand, do you? <laughs> Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I mean, I gave you, you had the power box, and you have another 210 horsepower at the turn of a down. Most guys ran it on fire level three, which gave them 100 horsepower and 300-foot-pound of torque. And you take that away, it's kind of a, a shock. But you still have 550 in the N14. I had five and a quarter. You can still drive the truck, right? Right, right. <laughs> we covered both those two boxes under warranty. And uh, <laughs> their second million <laughs> eight hundred thousand, yeah. and we covered it under warranty. Yeah, that's a hell you know. of a warranty. <laughs> and then, so we had boxes, power boxes for M14s and 3406Es, and then Caterpillar came along with their Acer. So, the way electronics works. You know, when you're unloading groceries and you're putting boxes on those conveyors that have their rollers and you're rolling them down. Yep. And so let's say the boxes are spaced evenly. That's how the electric, and, and Hero, if I'm wrong, you can correct me. That's how the electric looked like going to the injectors. And we would make that box longer. What Caterpillar did was on the MXS, they made it look like an ocean wave. And then they said, let's see if Pittsburgh Power can do anything with that. So, there was a big dealer meeting in Peoria, and some of my friends were there. And they raised their hand for questions and answers about the Acer. And the one guy said, will the Pittsburgh Power Box work on this Acer, and the guy running the seminar at Caterpillar said, We're not going to discuss that now. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Well, we, we, figured, we figured it out. Yeah. And you got to drive that one. Yep. When you were living in Colorado. And we figured out how to change the contour of the ocean wave. What a
0: difference. Every time you clicked that box back there, I knew it.
1: Yep. Yeah. And now here's how we got into the 60 series. It was 2003, and they were starting the road racing. Two brothers out of knew nothing about trucks out of Columbus, Ohio, and Tonka Tonka Trucks, the toy trucks. Mm-hmm. They put up the money, and these tubular frame trucks with. Uh, a body that looked like a Tonka truck, and they were done in Brazilton, Georgia. It rode Atlanta and Detroit. Offered them engines, 14 liter non EGRs. Oh, and they want they wanted us to increase the horsepower and take care of the engines out of the first five trucks. And here we are. We don't know anything about the 60 series. So I go to the engineers in Indianapolis and Columbus, Indiana, and I said, Guys, we got another project. Well, you say that to some older guys, their eyes kind of roar, not roar, uh, their eyes look up and and circle, and I was, Oh, God, he's up to it again. So, steep straight liner, loaned us some 60 series used trucks, put them on a dyno, and we started again. And Bob Atherton had five meters stacked up on and he's watching all these signals. And he used a bread, what he called a breadboard, where you could plug in a transducer or plug in something, and you didn't have to solder it. And he had also five of these boards out on his table. And he's standing there, rubbing his chin, and he's thinking, and he sees this spike. You know, these lines are going across one of his graphs and there was a spike. He said, Bruce, we gotta get rid of this spike. And he has a pair of side cutters in his hand, and he's looking at these five boards with all these electrical things in them. And then he reaches down and he snips one. And that line that went up about three inches when all the other lines were about an inch disappeared. And he said and yeah, I got it. I said, How did you know which one to clip? And he looked at me and he said, Many, many years of experience. I think it was like forty six. Forty six years of working with computers for diesel engines or wow. something like that. Wow. And that that was his answer. And that got us into working on the sixty series Detroits. There you go.
0: Hey hey Leroy.
1: Yes. Bruce, Bruce was
0: just talking about that, all the boards were out, and he said he, he looked down and you could see all those electrical things. Is that like a technical term? Uh, let me Google that real quick and I'll get back to you. Got it. Okay. All those electrical things. I know I don't, exactly I how know. you feel. No, I know exactly how you feel, Bruce. You look at the board and you think, what the hell is all that?
1: Yeah. 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 If you walk uh, in our mind. engineering department and Leroy puts out eight or 10 or 12 things and and you'll stand there and look at it. What is it? I have know? no idea what I that is. I can tell you everything it is.
3: Yeah.
0: All right. We have got to get moving along. The calls are piling up on us. Pete, Leroy, what do you guys have to add to
2: that? I think I was going to mention, I don't know if you've seen, where the um, Department of Justice is going after eBay for selling deletes. They seem
0: to be going after everybody all of a sudden. We, we talked for, you know, we've been talking about this for years, telling people not to do it. and and I've always said it it's they're not they don't seem to be going after anybody except maybe here or there. In this last year, um I've read more stories than ever about shops being charged. Uh, I didn't hear about eBay. That's a new one.
1: always oh, thought it was. What is it? Three point five million is the fine. one point nine billion dollar fine. Well, one point nine billion
2: oh. billion. Hold on, I I actually Excuse have a problem me? with this.
0: I get that it's illegal and they're going to crack down and and fine, but eBay? How are they going to hold eBay responsible for this? <laughs> eBay didn't make the product. Exactly, eBay was selling the product. <laughs> And it's just, you know, it's no different than these social media sites that are not responsible for the stuff that's posted until they start censoring people. Then it's my opinion they should be held responsible. But if all they're saying is, look, we're a platform, people put whatever they want on here and we're not here to police it. I agree with that. They should not be held responsible for that. It's the same thing here. How how should eBay be held responsible for everything that's sold on their platform? How could they ever control that?
2: How would they even know? I mean, right. it's not that's like they a, have it, a mechanic uh, can, uh, saying, hey, well, this is a defeat device. We can't sell it. I mean, that, someone's coming on saying, hey, I want to sell this. Electrical device. What if, yeah, sure, put it on. What if, and
0: I'm sure this happens, what if people sell knockoff stuff on eBay? Like it's not a real Rolex watch. It's a knockoff. Should eBay be responsible for that? What if somebody's in there selling a food product that they never got approved and it's got some goofy ingredient in it? I mean, how could a company like eBay ever police that kind of stuff? They can't. I stuff is never for sale on eBay. I've never <laughs> seen that ever. I don't know what talk about. Yeah, that's that's just ignorant also, that, that they went after eBay on this.
2: I, well, it's, I think low a hanging fruit. Right. Yeah, right. it's going to be an easy one. They have the money. You're not going to go out after the uh, pickup guy because... Yeah, what are you going to gonna get? To fix it, the pickup's worth. They'll just leave the pickup sit. Right. Uh, and there's too many people... So they're accusing them of selling three hundred and forty three thousand units. So it's a lot of customers to go after versus one.
0: Yeah, just go after eBay with all the money anyway. It's just wrong though. That's yeah, the problem.
4: They'll, settle
0: for a, a much amount.
4: they'll probably settle for like 10, 20 million and then just call it a day. Yeah. But yeah. I mean they
0: still ten twenty million. Yeah. Oh, I don't even want to go. Yeah. Well, good, because I don't even want to go down that road that uh that
1: just makes me crazy so they had a video they had a video of people with their deleted diesel pickups they called it rolling coal they would pull up to a prius and they would smoke it out yeah i know and every time you do that and the message to young people is when you do your deletes and you have no muffler and you're roaring black smoke and you're in towns and cities and you have to start out and make all this noise and push out all that smoke, you're causing too much attention. yep. And you're hurting. You're going to hurt yourself in the future. I agree. Leroy,
0: what's on your mind today? Well, I'll just tell a short story.
4: Um, So we had a, a truck in the shop that... It, it was kind of interesting so it's a 3d9 pete with a with an isx in it and we initially pulled it in we um checked codes on it everything was fine we go to put it back on the dyno after the, some of the repairs that we made i don't exactly remember everything that we did but the data link stopped working and when the data link doesn't work in the dash then the dyno can't read engine speed and if they can't do that then the dyno report doesn't have engine speed it's a whole thing, right? And plus, you can't hook up the check codes or see what the crankcase pressure is or anything. So we have it over there, and Alex, the the new tech that we have, comes back, and he's just like, hey, the data link doesn't work. I was like, all right, well, let's cycle the data link, you know, unplug it. If you're a remote dealer, one of our remote dealers, you've heard us give the spiel, because this is the, the same spiel we always give. Unplug it from both sides, plug it back in, try a different USB port. I mean, that's <laughs> right. sort of standard practice for anything USB. I mean, even you've tried that like, Oh, it's not working. I'll try a different port. Yeah. You know, or a cord. That's uh, right. Yeah. You're thinking cord. You're thinking right. this, da da da, da. So Jared, goes over to help him and he sees that there's no power on the data link. I'm like, Oh, well, this is, <laughs> that's your problem right there. There's no power. Yeah. And so he gets the multimeter out and we're checking and there's like, there's no cab ground. It's like, okay, I can't say there's no cab ground. But it's like a fifty ohm resistance from the battery negative to the cab. And I think somewhere I read a spec one time it's supposed to be less than ten ohms. Okay. So we're thinking, okay, this isn't the problem, but this is a problem. Right. right? And I would say that this truck is maybe not the most cared for truck. Right. <laughs> I'm not gonna say okay. any more than that. It's just yeah. not the most cared. <laughs> and we're going through some of the diagnostic process, like kind of letting Alex kind of trying to figure it out. I know Bruce mentioned that earlier on about like kind of letting Pete and those guys, you know, kind of do their thing. And you kind of have to step in every now and then. Because if you just do it for them, then they don't really learn. And some people say, I throw, I tend to throw new guys to the wolves. I just like to see what <laughs> what they can come up with, like their, their personality. Are they going to yeah. be like, I'll go to the ends of the earth to figure it out? Like, where's their breaking point? I like um, that. So... Whether it's I'm throwing them to the wolves or I won't help them or I'm just finding their breaking point, regardless. Yeah. So it comes back over, he says, I, I, I'm not finding anything. I, I can't figure it out. So we both go back over there and I'm looking at it. We don't see any 12 volts on the plug. I see 12 volts in the battery and I see 12 volts in the cigarette lighter. Now, this is sort of a, a quick like tip that we tend to always do is a cigarette lighter is a great place to check, like, a cab ground. I mean, the steps and stuff like that on the side of the door is another good place, but if you want to check what, like, the interior of the cab looks like as far as, like, does the instrument cluster have a ground? Does this have a ground? Does that have a ground? The, the cigarette lighter is a great place because usually
0: most grounds are tied into that. How long is it so going to be go before the there aren't any cigarette lighters in trucks? Are they still putting them in new trucks? They're not in cars. They haven't been in cars forever.
4: I think they're there. They're just called like power ports now. They don't actually call them cigarette lighters. I still call them the cigarette lighter, but
0: they're more like power ports or okay. whatever. So if we had a power port that's not a cigarette lighter, it would still be a good place to check a ground. Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, I guess, is it technically the cigarette lighter is the, the, the piece that you put in,
4: but it's like a power port? Is that what you would call that, I suppose? Yeah. So, I don't
0: know. I think so, yeah.
4: So the, the silver piece on the outside of the power port is the ground and the, the point in the middle is the is twelve vol. So right. I hey, always hey,
1: hey. hey I knew that too. That's good.
4: There yeah. you go. I knew so anytime like that. working on your truck or your car or anything like that and you have like the multimeter inside the cab in the interior and you're like, Well I can't find a good ground on the battery, make sure your cigarette lighter has a good ground and there you go. Now you have a ground to test everything in the whole cab without drawing a good big wire to battery. If I you're like on yeah, we use that one all the time. I like um, that.
3: So we
4: check that. The ground's not so good, so we have to fix that eventually. And I was like, oh, okay, well, did you check the, the fuse? Like, we, you know, keep it simple. Did you check the fuse for the diagnostic port? And he's like, oh, no, I, I didn't check that. I was like, okay. So I open up the panel to the, the fuse box, which is down in the footwell, like sort of next to the clutch down there. And I'm not quite sure what it is, but it looks like there's like... Salt covering everything, not like green corrosion, like salt. It's right. just like a white, just just covering everything. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. And it kind of, I w- I just assume salt because it's in the the footwell, like maybe yeah. salt water or something got in there. And we start pulling fuses, and I pull the diagnostic fuse, and I hold it up to the light. I mean, if everyone's ever checked a fuse, you pull the fuse out and you hold it up to the light. And it looks perfectly fine. You can see the sort of wave in yeah. the, the clear glass. It's not really plastic. But just as a double check, I mean, I have so many just experiences taught me this, just to double, triple check everything and never assume everything is working. So we put the multimeter on resistance or continuity, whatever you prefer. And we go across the fuse that I just pulled out for the diagnostic port. And it's reading like 200 and some mega ohms, which isn't open but it's, it's sure not supposed like it's supposed to be like, you know, zero ohms or something like that. So whatever this salt is, like corroded the inside of the fuse where it looked like it was fine. Oh, but when you would put a kidding. meter on it it, would pass it, it wouldn't pass any electricity through it, oh. but it looked fine. Oh, <laughs> that was could very make you subtle. crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there was a few ways you could check. If you had a multimeter, you can see that there was power on either side of them. But when you pull it out, just—I know a lot
0: of people are just like, "Oh, I pulled the fuse out, and looked at it, it looked fine." I like, could promise you, you, I would never think to—I—and I, I wouldn't even think to try another fuse at that point because I looked at it; it's good. Every fuse I've ever looked at in my life is either good or it's broke, and you can see it's broke. It's very wow. rare. I think I've only maybe
4: seen this one with a corroded fuse box. Very rare. But you gotta to triple check everything. I mean, this is like feet, you know, when we get uh, parts in for a rebuild, you gotta double check them. You sure do. I mean, they. it's very common, I've heard that bearings get mixed up. Yeah. You know, wow. you get some underside, whatever, in a, in a thing. the same thing with fuses. You just gotta double check everything. And we put go. a new fuse in, diagnostic, back to the of life. But the unfortunate part was, after I helped Alex, I was like, oh, you need to check the rest of those, by the way. <laughs> and then you just clean all this stuff. I was like,
0: I'm out. Have fun. Yeah, have <laughs> but, fun is uh, right. All right.
4: Yeah, Speaking
1: of... Kind of... So how, how, oh, go how did you get the salt out of it? How did you get the salt out?
4: Oh, well, he's probably back there still working with contact cleaner and some nylon, like a little oh, nylon. So, gun we,
1: so this is going on right now.
4: Yeah, it might be over by now, but that's what they were mm-hmm. doing when we got the show.
1: Yeah, this is
0: real okay. world stuff here. All right, yeah, we're Use gonna it, get to some. Calls. Me, wait,
1: you used the term two hundred and fifty what, mega ohms? What mega ohms, like you know, million ohms. If it's supposed, if it's two fifty, what's it supposed to be?
4: Basically zero. So if it's supposed to be zero, and you're getting two hundred and fifty million. You can say that that's not
0: good. <laughs> that's um. a little out of spec. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah, a little bit. Just a little <laughs> out of spec.
1: Did you know what that was, Kevin? Did you no, know what that was?
0: I didn't. I have to admit I did. But we're set, we're sure. I I did learn from the story that's, uh the whole fuse thing is interesting. If, if it could happen once, I'll always remember that now to check the port, check the cord, just try another fuse. Just put another fuse in there, and just eliminate. Even I, I wouldn't even bother checking a fuse. I just stick another one in. But that's uh, that's something I would have never thought of. Yeah, yeah it's rare. I mean, I did. Yeah. I wouldn't
4: have. I usually don't do that. It's just the fact that it looked pretty corroded. I was like, I right. don't know what you look like on the inside.
0: Interesting. So. All right, all right. We have had some people patiently waiting, so we're going to get to some calls. We're going to get to Oklahoma. Stephen, welcome. <laughs>
5: guys, hey, I just wanted to ask your guys' opinion. I know there's no crystal ball with this, but I got a 2018 Freightliner Cascadia, and I've got 946,000 miles on it. I still got the original clutch in it, and I got some friends that've been having to replace them much earlier than this. So the DD15 with the D12 transmission, do you guys have any opinion about the longevity of these clutches?
0: I I'll I, just, I don't
5: want to just go and. Re-
0: I'll just throw out so my I opinion on that That something yeah. like a clutch, even if there is a number out there that, and there are numbers for almost every component on that truck. If we dig deep enough, somebody will calculate what they call the half life, and but it's going to be an average, and if the driver yeah. has an impact on that wear then forget those averages, they are gonna be meaningless. I have seen clutches wear out in 400,000 miles with a really bad driver, and I've seen clutches at 1.4 million miles still working. So any average would just be misleading.
1: Isn't this transmission the automatic that, that shifts itself with using the clutch?
5: Yeah, it's just you know the the manual transmission with the the computer, the you know the D twelve, and I don't.
1: Yeah, it's DT twelve. Yep. So you're not shifting it; the yeah. computer's shifting it. Correct. Well, then that right. should well, be. Well, specif-
5: specif- I guess I can. I guess
1: I can my
5: foot Is
4: seven hundred fifty thousand miles. But go ahead.
5: Well, I guess, you know, when I think about my foot control about it, I don't smash the pedal trying to take off at a light. I'm, I ease taking off the light. My truck always takes off in first gear. Uh, and I, I know the price of a clutch right now. The clutch job is almost $10,000 for these trucks if you do everything the right way, I guess. What? And I don't want to just...
1: Wait, wait a second. Pete, don't we have that clutch in stock now?
2: We do. So we do have a clutch for the the, the D uh, thirteen transmission. It's a D12. Mm-hmm. D12, D twelve or D twelve.
4: Yeah, and, it's an and how
1: much is how much is our clutch?
4: $9. A thousand dollars
1: nine ninety nine. A thousand. Yes. Okay. So, guys, so all you, you, you got to uh, do is remove the transmission and put the clutch in. Is that correct, Pete?
5: Flywheel. Reservice flywheel. The flywheel.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah so I'm, I'm looking at uh, maybe thirty five hundred dollars. That's what I'm thinking.
4: Yeah, why,
0: why? I'm, how did a, clutch, a transmission for 10 grand? Yeah, how did a clutch job become ten thousand dollars? I've got a buddy just did it with a d sixteen.
5: With the clutch, and he just quoted me $10,000 at a Detroit shop out in Colorado, a Freightliner freight shop in Colorado, I, almost
0: $10,000 to do that job. I would love to see the detail so on that invoice five, and, and why it costs that. Well, now I would, too. I mean, it, it, they, yeah. it has to explain I, I, something on the invoice. It's parts and labor, and they, it would tell us how many hours of labor and what the rate is. I, I would love to see that invoice.
5: I'll, I'll get the I'll see if he'll send me the invoice because now I, I don't want to spend 10 grand if a uh, oh, power no. can do it for under 5,000. And I've had sure. this truck out. I, I spent $10,000 on a one box over a year ago. You know where it still sits in my storage unit because I don't need it. And it's just, it's just hey, sitting there. Hey, Pete.
0: Yes. How much more complicated is it to pull out one of these transmissions on a modern truck compared to trucks in the two thousands even? I mean, I I can't imagine that it's that much more difficult.
2: I would not think. I don't think we have had to pull one out at this point, but I can't imagine it being that much harder. I get
4: it. We just recently, this year, upgraded clutch, the performance clutch
0: 12. I completely understand why an in-frame has gotten more expensive. Because it takes you eight hours to get to the head sometimes on these things now. They're everything under the hood, so crowded and complicated, and there's more stuff. I get that, but seems to me like the taking out a transmission just hasn't changed that much. No, because the room back there is the same. Right. Yeah. Huh.
5: Well, I'll get the invoice, and, I, and I'll and i get with you guys on that thing, uh, because I would obviously much rather go to your guys' shop for— uh,
0: exactly Top
5: the bill for sure so
0: all right sounds good if right, you yeah, did it. thank you yeah if you get that invoice I'd love to take a look at it and see how they justify ten thousand dollars for a clutch let's go to Mississippi mark welcome
6: uh, hey good morning
0: what's on your mind today
6: well you, you're repeating on your audio it's like I I'm, I'm hearing you I'm hearing you repeat it's like right. this the audio. I'm hearing myself talk. Just right now, it's on, hard to talk hold, the,
0: I, hold on. Take a break. Uh, are you hearing that only on your phone on this call, or were you hearing that on the app on the show itself?
6: Well, I was one of the first. I was one of the first people on hold.
0: So you're hearing it—the echo in every call on hold. Yes. Because if, if we had an echo on the app or the live stream, somebody would have told me already. So, your call. I guess
6: I'll only call back.
0: Yeah, your call hang up and- was there when we were having the problem. Remember, I kept all the calls in, but nobody else told me they were hearing that. All right, he disappeared anyway. It is hard. It's almost impossible to talk when I'm you here. hear that. Yeah. Um, so, we will continue to move on. Let's go to Missouri. Richard, welcome. <laughs>
7: Hey guys, um, a couple weeks ago, somebody called in the show about um, the, the auxiliary fan coming on when a jake brake was coming on. And Leroy had mentioned something about you can turn it off, or somebody mentioned something about turning it off. Whenever I, whenever I activate my jake brakes, my auxiliary fan will come on, and it'll stay on almost a minute. After, the, after I uh, disengage my jake brakes, is there any way, can I, can I disengage that fan from coming on when the jake brake comes on?
4: Yeah, it sounds like you have what's called dynamic fan braking turned on in the ECM, which is just like it sounds when the engine brakes come on, the fan also kicks on to help drag the engine down. So, yes, yeah, so that's just a enable-disable feature that we can turn off.
7: Okay, because I've got the laptop, and I was doing some checking on my truck a couple months ago, and I I noticed it said something in there about dynamic uh, braking, and I think I may have checked that, so is that my problem? I just need to go in and uncheck that? Uh,
4: sorry, my headset was having an issue. One more time?
7: I, I was uh, checking some things on my truck because I got the computer, and I... I believe I noticed something in the settings where you can set the, the speed and the tire size and all that. I think, is that where you, is that where you go in and, and do that setting? Because I think there's was something in there on dynamic braking. And I think yep. that might be checked. So is that where I go in and uncheck that to turn that off? Yep. That's exactly where you go. Okay. Uh, I got two more things. One for Bruce, if, if you don't mind, uh, on the, Pyrometer. Um, we put those on the fifth, fifth port on the exhaust manifold.
1: Okay, is That's
7: that okay. is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, and also on the fuel pressure, um, the I got a right. uh,
1: fuel. Let me, me ask you a question. What, what truck? What truck do you have?
7: Oh, I, I'm sorry. I got a 2000 T600 Kenworth with a 127 Detroit, a 99
1: model. okay so do you have? do you have one of our manifolds on it yes i do okay so there's a boss on and right in front of number four cylinder there's one okay uh, y'all okay so so why didn't you put it in that boss right there okay yeah i uh,
7: well the pyrometer that i got from y'all the there is a port on the on the Popping coming off of the turbo, and I didn't know that we we're supposed to put them on the exhaust manifold. When I put that on there, I didn't know that till till after I had put the exhaust manifold. And I was listening to the show one day, and you mentioned something about that.
1: You know how many times we have talked about that? Are you I've never to heard I, to the show?
7: Yeah, I've never heard you mention anything about that till after I had put that that uh, exhaust manifold on. Okay.
1: Alright, so you're not in front of number five cylinder, you're after the turbo. Yeah, I'm after the turbo. All right. So get a right sixteen drill bit and a quarter inch pipe tap and tap in front tap that boss in front of number four cylinder and put it there. Okay. And on the uh fuel pressure, I do have a fuel restrictor
7: gauge but um but the getting the uh fuel pressure to find out how much fuel pressure I got does that need to go before my filter or after my filter, or fuel where does that fuel pressure? No, no. The fuel restriction is coming after the after the filter. But I'm talking about a fuel pressure gauge to tell me how much fuel
1: pressure I got. Pete knows more about that one than I do, or he may be. Okay. Yeah, that'll go off the the fuel pump itself. Okay, the so after pressure. the
2: fuel pump, it's actually in the fuel pump itself.
7: Oh, it's the in the fuel. Okay.
2: Yeah. And then oh, the pressure, okay. so on a Detroit, the pressure, Detroit specs is like at idle at 1,400 and then at governed speed. So there's a couple of different readings for the fuel pressure. Uh, unlike okay. saying it's 15, the it specs 130 to 150, regardless of RPM. You know that, That's the spec on it. Where Detroit's, I mean, I can try to look it up here real quick. I think it's you. like 12,
4: 20 or something like that at idle. And then like 70, 75 at 1900. I think it's something like that. Okay. okay. So for uh, four, it,
2: it is 15 to 22 pounds at idle, 30 to 45 pounds at 1300, and then 65 to 80 at 2100.
7: 65 to 80 at 21. Correct. Okay, uh, Okay, uh, that's all I have. Then I sure so appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for
3: the
0: call. Let's go to Lord uh, Charlie. Welcome.
3: Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Doing good. What's on your mind today? I sent in a oil sample that I just pulled. Got like the engine got one hundred and eighteen thousand six hundred and seventy four at the time I pulled it after the second frame. All
0: right, I um, think. Let me make sure I got this. I think I saw an oil sample in my email, so let
1: me go find that. Uh, Charlie, I was talking about you yesterday. How do what? I was talking about you yesterday.
3: Oh, okay. And right. your gear ratios. So, I've I got, like that gear ratio. All right, I've are got, you there? Yep,
0: I've got your oil sample in front of me. What is the question?
3: Why is with that being new injectors and uh, I'm gonna say a new head is probably a remand from detroit why is my fuel dilution at 1.4 uh because two is basically zero
0: on this report opia or polaris labs has probably the best equipment available for testing for fuel dilution a lot of labs over the years have not kept up with all the fuel blends that are out there the b10s b20s somebody actually posted a picture the other day of a fuel pump, a diesel pump that said 99% biodiesel. And the problem with all these blends is it becomes more difficult to detect fuel dilution in the oil. And many labs can't even do it accurately anymore. And we have to use only viscosity to try to figure it out. Or Polaris has upgraded equipment that is, they should probably adjust their readings. Um, 1.4 to me is virtually no fuel dilution whatsoever. We don't even tell people to start trying to figure it out till fuel dilution gets to four. If it gets to four, then we will say, okay, that is true fuel dilution and let's go figure out why. But at 1.4,
3: that's virtually zero. Okay, and the copper, it's at four, which I know we're not really concerned. What I'm concerned about is this oil cooler hanging on, wait, wait, on wait, the wait, side wait, of this. Wait, 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 We must be looking at different oil samples. Your copper is one on the sample. Was it one on that sample? Okay, maybe I'm looking further. Maybe I was looking further up, but how no. long? I never see a four. Most oil cooler here, here, here's your history. Out. Three,
0: five, two, one, and one.
3: Okay, oil. that four must have came from somewhere else.
0: Yeah, I don't know where you are getting four. But here's uh, the thing. Even if it were four, we don't even look at copper unless there has been a history of lead first. Because copper, we're not concerned about oil coolers. We're concerned about bearings. You have to get through all the lead okay. overlay before you can get to copper. So, and... We will occasionally see copper spike to like three and four hundred. And what that is, is it is an oil cooler causing it, but it's not a broken oil cooler. It just it's decided to start leaching copper and we don't know why it happens. It doesn't hurt anything. So when we see those big spikes in copper, we can just
3: ignore them. They're, they're meaningless. OK, because that oil cooler got. 2,042,724 miles on it. Well, that you just... It's never been replaced since 2007 when the motor was built. Your question was going
0: to be, how long do they last? Well, we know some of them last 2.4 uh-huh. million miles.
3: Okay, so i got a while there.
0: Let, let's think about this. Um, a uh, Leroy, Pete, Bruce, anybody, correct me if I'm wrong. It's The oil cooler's basically just a little radiator, right? Yes. Right. It's just radiating heat to, to bleed off heat. There's no moving parts. The oil is flowing through it. There, there's almost nothing to wear out. They should last a long time.
2: And this is okay. a different, right, Charlie? You have a 12 series now. Detroit. Now, we don't see really problems with the oil cores on those. Like a cat, I don't either. A, a c they they're good for about, about a million miles. But they're, it's a different design. Uh, during an engine rebuild and an overhaul, more than likely you're gonna change your oil cooler on a cat. Um, uh, but the twelve sevens and we've changed some over the years, but it's not but, a
3: common problem at all. No. It's, they're pretty bulletproof. Yep, they are. Okay, yeah, this is the fourteen liter. The crank and the cam both have two million forty two thousand on them. It's never had an out of frame. It's had two in frames, but it's never had an out of frame.
1: Mm -hmm. Must have a good driver on it
3: I think it's just a good truck I think the motor's possessed Maybe that's because
1: the driver is I mean I do try to take care of it that, That truck still looks good I just saw a picture of it on Facebook A day or two ago It still looks good
3: Well thank you I do eventually when If rates ever straighten out I do want to get the whole thing painted again But right now that's way down the list The main thing is keeping it going up and down the road. There you go. All right.
0: Good stuff. Yeah. Their uh, oil sample looks great. There is no fuel dilution whatsoever on this truck. So don't worry about it. We're going to head off to Nebraska. And I think this is going to be our last call today. Brad, you get the final word.
8: Oh, that's dangerous. Just got a question on when you are increasing the performance of your engine and... I remember Bruce at saying, you know, "I like level 3 you added like 300 foot-pounds of torque. What's the rule of thumb for going beyond capacity on your transmission torque rating?"
1: That's a good subject. And let's go back into the days of the 400 big games we had 1200 series transmissions. So, are you an owner operator? Yes. Okay. When you start out and you're in the low side of the transmission, Do you push the throttle to the floor, grab a gear and mash it to the floor and grab another gear and try to pick that left front tire up in the air, or do you just ease into the throttle and pull out? I ease into the throttle, and I shift when I hear horns honking behind me. Okay. All right. So it doesn't matter if you had 2,500-foot-pound of torque and a 1,600-foot-pound of torque transmission because you're never using it all anyway. And when you're out and rolling, like – Let's say you're in Western Iowa on Interstate 80, and you're going through those humps, and you're at 65, 70 mile an hour, and you're rolling into the throttle on a downhill side and going up the other side. The transmission's not feeling that torque, so we we never have a transmission issue with owner operators, and we don't have differential or drive shaft issues, even whenever we would take. Those older trucks that had low torque transmissions and go truck pulling and take the engine up over a thousand horsepower, 200, or, uh, two hundred or two thousand eight hundred RPM. Ooh. Left front wheels hanging a foot in the air and you're getting the red flag because you're dragging the sled at the county fair. We still never broke a transmission or a drive line. Hey, hey, Bruce, there's another factor pretty here
0: good. too. Remember your earlier story about the engineering safety factor that's built in. And we don't know exactly Mm -hmm. what that might be on a transmission, but we know it's there. They don't rate transmissions for 1,300 pounds of torque if they're going to break at 1,400. They give much (laughs) more of a cushion. Um, The other example of this, you talked about differentials. The first time I went to single out a tandem axle tractor, I was told... You have to pull both differentials out and put in a 23,000-pound differential. And if it were built from the factory as a single axle, that's what it would have. It would have the 23,000-pound, not the 20,000-pound. My thought was, and I didn't know at the time, but my thought was, okay, you may be right, but I already own this differential, and it's already in the truck. Why don't I just use it until I break it? And yeah, I might have a breakdown on the road. I'll deal with that. But, but why not use it till I break it or wear it out or start to notice that there's some wear in an oil sample? So the first one I did, I was nervous about. And I waited and waited and waited and waited and did a couple oil samples and waited some more. And, and at 1.2 million miles on that light differential, I sold the truck. And people told me, you can't do that. It's not going to work. You're going to tear up that differential.
1: Up. Yeah, well, we didn't. Right. So let's do this. Every time an owner operator calls, we want to know if they ever exploded a transmission, twisted a drive shaft off, or scattered a differential. I'm not saying wear out, you can wear them out. Okay. Wait. But have they ever exploded it? Hey. And I'll bet you, if you, if you talk to 100 owner-operators, you'll get
0: never. Hey, Bruce, would would snapping an axle out at the cap count rear axle? The reason I ask is because <laughs> I, I I did it. Um, unfortunately, it was one of those crazy days, and I was stuck at the scale, and I needed to slide the tantrums, and they were stuck, and I was in a hurry, and I kept jerking on it, and I, I broke the axle out <laughs> at the cap. Yeah.
1: Well, you abused it. I did. And I knew I was abusing I, it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I broke the axle in my Kenworth, work and, and only because I was right outside of Green River, Utah, heading uh, east on 70. And I lost all the fluid. And there was a guy behind me and he said, I saw the fluid coming out. I said, "Why oh, didn't you say something God. on the radio?" <laughs> you
6: know? God, I'm a single axle oh, truck, man. and now I got a yeah. broken
1: axle. Yeah. And uh, so, and so it, it, it took the axle housing and everything. But, but no. You, so you you knew that what you were doing was wrong, and, and it correct. broke. Yeah. Right? And and then so, I, I've talked yeah. about the fact that
0: I somehow lead a charmed life. So it's Friday. If I don't get this load off, I was like in New Jersey somewhere. If I don't get this load off, I'm spending all weekend in New Jersey. I want to go home. I snapped this axle. I could lock in the power divider and keep going, but I want to drive it like this. So I got to a little independent shop. It's late Friday afternoon. He says, I don't think I have parts. I don't know if I can get them. So he's on the phone seeing if he can get parts. And I'm wandering around his shop. And I looked down and there's an axle laying on the floor. And I said, would this fit? And he walks over and he said, yeah, actually, that'll work.
1: And he put it in and off I went. Yeah. You know, back in the days of the early big cams, um, we had a lot of guys doing heavy haul, and We'd take that 400 up to 600 horsepower. And one guy told me on an A-model Kenworth, he said, you know how I judge how much torque I'm using? I said, no. He said, by how how much I twist the truck and the hood pulls away from the cow. (laughs) (laughs) I said, really? Uh, And there was another fellow delivering a piece of equipment to a mine, and I think it was in Colorado, and... You were not supposed to drive up over the mountain. You were supposed to stop at the bottom of the mountain. There was a sign, and you were supposed to know, on a phone there. This was before cell phones. And you were supposed to call them, and they would come over the mountain, unload the equipment, and drive it over. Ah. And our customer was an A-model. Pete, John, John that had moved to Colorado, remember, he camped out out in front of the shop. What was his last name? Browning. John John Browning. John took that piece of equipment up over that mountain, and he said, When I pulled into their yard, their chins were dropped. And he said, they said to me, didn't you see that sign? And he said, what sign? You're not supposed to drive over that mine. He said, well, I was in first gear, and I had this thing wide open. No transmission failure. And we just don't see transmissions failing with owner-operators. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Yep.
8: Can I pass, can hey, I pass along I, one other?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you a real quick story. A guy came up to me the Louisville truck show and he said, I've got a question. He said, I'm I'm new at being an owner operator. I used to be an accountant and I've gone through three transmissions in one year. Ah. I said, really? <laughs> I said, you better go back to being an accountant. Yeah. And he said, Well, I got into co- I got into cocaine and I, I lost my license and so I bought a truck. Oh boy. And I said, I suggest that you get with a, an owner operator and you ask him if you could ride with him for a week and watch how he drives and that's an honest to god true story and that's the only time i've ever heard it but this was not a seasoned owner operator right hmm. yep
8: oh the one thing that i wanted to pass along extra is along the lines to what leroy said about a fuse I had an instructor at the mechanic school that I went to show me this, and this will save a lot of hair being pulled out. When you get a test light, you're going to check wiring. Check the test light to make sure the light actually works in the test light first.
9: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's exactly. I have, okay, yep. <laughs>
8: I have seen. I've had guys had me come over to their house. He said, "I can't find power anywhere on here." Oh man, check the test light. No,
0: right. well, check it. Put get a battery and check it, and it works, so, or it didn't third? work, so it. <laughs> It's just home wiring. There's an easier way. Just grab the thing with your fingers, you'll know.
1: Hey, uh, yeah, well, this is on a vehicle. Well, well oh, think okay. about it now. That test light could be bouncing around in a toolbox with wrenches and pliers. Yeah. Yeah. So Good
0: another good simple tip. Always have,
1: I always I always would take my test light and go to the battery and touch positive and negative and make sure it lit. Good habit. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, you guys have a good day. Thanks for the taking my call. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. All right. We are going to go back to we I said that was the last call except we got Mark back. Mark, does it sound better now?
6: Oh, it's perfect. I'd like to thank uh, Morgan and Angie for helping get me back in. So they
0: they, uh, they are awesome.
6: Okay, so uh, Pete knows a lot about this and uh, last week, at the end of last week, ended up having my A G R cooler replaced on this DD 13 2018 and so that was that and uh I loaded Sunday and then Sunday night over in Louisiana I got a code come on stop read the code it had to do with uh DEF tank heater heat high or some shit like that and so I cleared it and just thought well that's just a random anomaly so unloaded Monday morning the rest of it drove over to Montgomery from New Orleans, leaving the leaving Hyundai last night. Light comes on, go down, same light. I got it cleared, and I'm like, okay, well, that's there's more to this than you know. And then it came on again, and I couldn't get it cleared, and it said, you know, I did a I did a forced regen last night in Grand Bay, and it hasn't come on today. It did clear this morning, so the code is. I don't know if Leroy saw my email. The code is. It's SA-61 SPN 3363 FMI 0 overview, diesel exhaust, fluid tank, temperature high, Uh, but when you hook the OTR resource tool up to it, it's like the temperature is always like within specs. So, and here's another thing. So I fueled in the middle of all this while I was on hold and whatnot, I fueled and my DEF usage has gone from well, it started back in September as I was at one one thirty four miles per gallon, and then last October twelfth it was one twenty four. This morning I'm a hundred miles per gallon, so DEF is like usage is going up. So my game plan is to go to Redneck tomorrow. Uh, I, my question was, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if it's the header, the the, the tank header. Or a sensor it seems like it's just a, a header just fits into the tank or whatever does uh um, leroy do you know much about this
4: um well it's a lot to unpack there i mean it could be a few different things uh, the first obvious thing is like whether the sensor is reading or right reader reading right or not and then the second thing is is this like an intermittent problem like does it read 80 degrees sometimes and the next time it reads 180 is that sort of a, a wiring I, issue? I, something back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Um, is it the, the the tank heater? Is it coming on when it's not supposed to? Um, that could be kind of maybe a less of a possibility because ECM controls it or the ACM. You, you said it was a D thirteen or a DD thirteen.
6: DD 20 twenty. Y'all got a tune, y'all put a tune in it, so it's 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 a twenty eighteen DD thirteen in a Western Star. Yeah, car haul. Yes, yeah,
4: so, I mean. It's probably not the 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 heater coming on, but yeah, it's probably there's some sort of wiring or or sensor issue. I mean, that's the most probable of things. I mean, there's always other things it could be, but that's the most probable thing.
6: So, I guess I was not you know I, Jr. called me in the middle of all this and we talked for a second. He's like, well, I'm not the D, I'm not a Detroit a master of Detroit or whatever, but. He's like, if there was beef contamination, there'd be other codes. And it's just this one code that comes up and it's like, well, it hasn't happened today. And I started in grand Bay and I'm down in Hammond, Louisiana. And so I just thought, well, you know, something's wrong there. And it's like, before this thing leaves me on the side of the road, I need to get to a reputable shop. So oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, we, in, the closest to one to be redneck up there in Dallas. And after I get unloaded today, just to head that way. I was planning I it, planned to go there anyway for an oil leak, but it's like this thing's a little bit more important at the time. Uh, yeah,
4: it's a bit of a, a misconception. I mean, you're on the right track. Um, not everything on that emission system will put you in a five-mile-an-hour D-rate. The yeah. only thing that really does it is anything like DEF or SCR-related. Like the yeah. DPF can put you in a D-rate, but not like a five-mile-an-hour D-rate. Those yeah. are exclusively for DEF and SCR-related things. So. Yeah, if it gets to a point yeah. where it gets really upset and it's just like, okay, you know, you're no more death spraying for you, then yeah, yeah. that's gonna put you out of the road. But that's the now.
6: only code that I mean, it's thrown it several times according to the the stool I have. It's thrown it several times, but like last night, you know, when at the end of the day I couldn't get it to I couldn't get it to clear, so I was like, well, I don't. And then this morning it cleared, and so far it hasn't showed back up. So I, I also looked know, for your like, email, and I, I didn't get your email. Oh well, I sent it to engineering at uh, uh, power. Okay. That, that that that's yeah. the engineering Dropbox. So
4: try um try sending it to uh, Leroy at Pittsburgh Power.
6: Oh okay, yeah. I, I sent it. I copied Pete, but I didn't know who. I just I just had in the past. I've had this engineering at Pittsburgh Power dot com, and so I just figured y- y'all all got it, or maybe that's a certain Dropbox you actually have to go to to look in. I don't know. So. Uh I didn't have yours. I should have just put, put Leroy, so uh <laughs> Yeah, it's got it, It's or L-E-R-O-Y or L E E R O Y. Just one E. Yep. Okay. Okay, right. wasn't sure. Gotta ask. Yeah. No. Had a had a guy the other day down in, in Corpus. I was asking him a sign. I said, What's your name? Leonel. How do you spell that? L E O Leon Leon. A-L or something, not Lionel, it was, he can't pronounce Leonel, I, I couldn't spell it. So wow, Okay. I'm not saying, I'm saying your name's hard to spell,
1: but... Uh, well, t- let, me, let me tell you what happens when people leave voicemails. They're so anxious to get to their problem that they say their name so fast, and sometimes the first name rhymes right in with the last name, yeah. and you can't make it out, and you feel foolish, and so you take a guess at it, and you'll call them and say what you think it was. They'll say, no, that's not my name.
6: I don't um, care. You call me whatever, as long as you call me. I, like, <laughs> I left my phone number three times in the voicemail this morning. So, but uh,
1: did you leave you it know, in my voicemail?
6: No, I went to engineering because that's what Pete said. I had to need to talk to engineering, so I went to enge- I mean, yeah, I the shop today. What's
2: that? The, the guys I was telling Bruce, the guys were tied up in the shop when you had called. Yeah, they
6: got you know huh. Jr. called me back, oh, know, somewhere at that. one point, and then. You know, I was on hold here, and JR called me back, and we talked. And then I've gotten this. Now, when I fueled just a minute ago, I noticed that, because I track, I track my use, fuel and DEF usage, I track it. It's like fuel can be all over the place at times. But DEF generally is always consistent. And it's like the usage has gone up significantly here in the last, the last run. So I know there's an issue. It's got to be an issue. It just doesn't disappear. It hasn't leaked. Mm-hmm. The DEF pump was replaced earlier this year. Uh, cause it was leaking, but it was replaced. So I, but I haven't got any other codes or whatever. So, Kay. I mean, I expect when the weather gets cooler, the usage to go up a little bit, My that seems kind of extreme. So, mm-hmm. uh, cause I track all of that. Uh, I just, you know, I just don't want to get in a D rate out to after and get towed. You know, and I, I want to get to where somebody can actually knows what they're doing and I'd have to guess or whatever. I mean, I'm not exactly happy with the guy I used on my, uh, EGR cooler, but that seemed like simple and straight ahead. It was just removing it. it's It's small more, more, and the one thing I found out about that, I looked at that part, and it's a lot more involved in the engine than I thought. It's pretty much everything runs through there, so I don't know how anybody would delete an EGR cooler and delete an engine, because it seems like the whole coolant system is integrated into the engine through there. It's a pretty big piece, at yeah. least on Detroit. I had no idea. It's like some of it's hidden underneath there, so, but... And then I thought, well, maybe he hooked the hose up wrong. And I got up there and looked and looked at all the hoses. And I'm like, well, they still look like where they were supposed to be or whatever. So I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm.
1: I just take a picture up. before and after. And then the you have a reference.
6: Uh, yeah, well, I didn't do that. I just. Good tip. Know. I do that but a lot. But it was used a lot. It was. Yeah. And then I pulled an oil sample. So I sent an oil sample in because I called Pete yesterday and he changed the oil. Well, I don't think so. I said, well, I pulled an oil sample. And here's another thing, deal. This has all been so screwed up. So Sunday morning, I go to the UPS store to drop off the oil sample. And the guys look, first he had long hair, and I thought he was a woman, and he was wearing a mask, but he was a man. And it was like, they started questioning, what's in it? I said, it's an oil sample. Is it flammable? Uh, well, it goes inside the engine around 220 degrees, so not really flammable. It's just- flammable. And so they-, they called me back, and they weren't going to ship it, but then they decided to put it in a box. And it's just going across Houston. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a pain in the ass and on certain things anymore. But I just yeah. trying to just trying to call a doctor's office and get through. I mean it's uh Yeah. Hey, it, hey, I, I have one quick. go ahead, Bruce. Kevin, I sent you an email I sent you an email of something I want to talk about real quick. Okay. Go ahead. Or do you want me to see the email first? I'm looking it up right now. Yeah.
0: Oh, a From testimonial. Jay, we we love testimonials.
1: Jay, Jay Raspberry bought a 2017 Cascadia DD15 with 500,000 on it. He started running the Max mileage Catalyst immediately. He's he put 258,000 on it, so now there's 811,000 on it, and he was in Freightliner. And I forget why they took the one box apart. I was just talking to he asked, He
0: asked them to. Oh, he asked them okay. to inspect. I'm reading the email right now. He asked them to inspect
1: the DPF filters and the overall condition of the EGR system. And they questioned this, and several mechanics came over and said, how could this be this clean with 811,000? Uh, so what's that, amazing that, is the first 500,000. Oh, they also showed him, normal ones, and they said that the soot and carbon buildup was as much as a half inch on the face of them. And you could it, stick your finger like into new. it. Yeah. But that's 811,000 on that. And we have it wow. posted on our website. You can even see the truck where they pulled it out. Yeah. That's um, that's,
0: that's incredible. That looks so clean. Yeah. Ah. Uh.
1: Sometimes we think that that if you start at a half a million and you start running the max mileage catalyst, you may have to clean the DPF after a couple months, but uh, a lot of times it cleans itself with the catalyst, and this is one example right here.
0: All right. One quick customer service story, since you just talked about customer service and how bad it's gotten lately. When... Loves came out with their Tire Express concept. I thought it was a really good idea. They take one fuel lane and they put compressors in at every tire position, both sides down the truck, steers, drives, trailers. Um, for ten bucks, they go through every tire, truck, and trailer and set it to whatever pressure you want. Uh, they probably—I don't know what the maximum is—probably not high enough for me. But um, you're there getting fuel anyway. You're parked right in the lane. They can just do it right then. So when I picked the coach up from the shop the other day, I took off. There's a lot of stuff we're thinking about. And I checked my tire pressure monitor and the tire on my tag axle is low. And it's low enough and I'm watching the heat and it it wasn't getting really hot. But I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stop and put air in it. So I pull in the lows. I see that trying to find an air compressor or pump anymore on the road is way more difficult than it used to be. So I thought, I'll just pull in the Tire Express. I'll give them five or 10 bucks or whatever they want to do a coach. So first off, there's a call box and it was really awkward to do it from the RV. So I pulled past because I needed to go in to the desk anyway. So when I go into the desk, I said, Hey, I'm in the uh, Tire express lane. Can you send somebody out? And she said, no. And I said, why not? She said, you have to do that from the call box. And I said, I get that. I said, but the call box is kind of awkward I went past it. Now I'd have to back up. I said, can you just call them this time? No, we can't. I said, all right. So I go back out to the call box, back up, stick my head out the window, trying to reach up there. It's kind of awkward. I hit the button, and all they say is, tires or propane? I said, tires. And then silence. And I'm waiting, waiting. And I give it like 30 seconds. And I hit the button again. And then I get, what? And I said, I'm waiting on tires. She said, I know you're waiting on tires. You told me that. I'll send somebody out. All right. So 30 minutes, I waited. Nobody showed up in 30 minutes. Nobody came out to say, sorry, we're, we, we're waiting on a technician. Just nothing. Totally ignored for 30 minutes. So at that point, I drag out all my own air hoses and do it myself. What a, I thought it was a great idea, but a horrible concept or execution. And I'm sure it's just because they're short on
1: employees like everybody yep, yep. That waited what we're doing dealing yesterday with these afternoon layers. for a garage door company that installed the garage yep. doors in my house and it has a an industrial opener and they said, well, we can't service those anymore. I said, why? You put it in in 2013. I didn't own the house. Then. They said, well, we lost all of our techs. During COVID, oh. and they wouldn't come back. And I said, Well, I need two garage door openers. She said, We can do that. So we'll be there between two and five. And I waited and waited, and they never showed up and never called. So was, that's my first phone call after the show today. I say, At least you could have called and said you so, were going to.
0: Here's the opposite story really outstanding customer service, and why the shop down there is the only shop that really touches my truck or coach. They did a huge upgrade on the inverters and the electrical system, and uh, I started checking things, and I started finding all kinds of weird little problems in the coach, and they didn't seem to have anything in common until I realized All of them are run by the controller for the inverters. So I started thinking something went wrong in this upgrade. So I went back down and I had a couple other little things I found. And when I got back to the shop, I brought it home over the weekend and then I took it back Sunday night. Um, So I get down there and I have never seen the shop this busy. They have hookups in the back. So you can just go in at night. I've got the gate code. I park in the back. I hook up. They come out, wake me up in the morning. And you know, or I take the truck in in the morning. It's the first time I've ever seen no space in the back. So I couldn't hook up. So then there's coaches all down the side. So I found a place to park, spent the night, got up the next morning. I said, look, I know you guys are swamped, but I've got to get this thing done. I've I've got a big trip and I've either got to get it done or I've got to make other travel plans. And as busy as they were, and they were really busy, they pulled three techs and put them all on my coach and got me out that day. That's customer service. Yeah. You made somebody and, and else wait, two. though, huh? Well, and two reasons. One, you know, it, yeah, I'm a good customer. I go back a lot. I don't complain. I don't bitch about my bill. or So I've got a really good relationship with them. But the reason they pulled two, t- three texts, no matter how busy they were, it was their fault. I mean, they made the mistake. They, they didn't check all through the programming on this thing, and they didn't catch those things. And that's yeah. what they said. said, look, this is our fault. We will get you out of here today. Yeah. So.
1: Okay. All right. right. We
0: we are going to wrap this up for today. We'll do it again next week. Thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power, as always. If you have any other questions between now and then, call them. Uh, And we will see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. I think... I think Dr. Ben Tapper might be uh, joining me tomorrow. Uh, Bruce, real quick, you'll get a kick out of this. Um, Dr. Tapper is just a small town chiropractor in Iowa. Great chiropractor, by the way. Um, He became notorious during COVID because he was calling out all the problems the vaccine was causing with his patients. And he got he posted a video about something and it went completely viral, got like millions of views. He was actually named specifically by the president in the White House. It's called it's called the Dirty Dozen. And they're they claim, the White House claims these are the worst spreaders of misinformation about COVID and the vaccine.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Well, my character yeah, so, uh, told me not to do it. By the way, um, right. when I go in and they say, who's your general health practitioner? I said, I don't have one. I have two chiropractors that I go to. Well, that's not yep. a doctor. I said, oh. But yes, they it
0: is.
4: <laughs> and I
1: go to applied kinesiology. I said, do you know what applied kinesiology is? And they don't. And so I explained it to Of them. course not. I, I said, so I don't have a regular doctor. And my one chiropractor that I've been seeing since 1979 – and thank God he's still in practice because he's two years older than me. Um he told me don't get the shot and then you said that same week, don't get the shot, I said, That's that's all I need to hear. So Yeah. Well this this you guy became in keeping me away from it. He
0: he told enough people about it that the uh the White House targeted him. Still do. So hmm. he'll be on the uh show tomorrow if you want to listen to that one. I think it's gonna be some good stuff.
1: I'm going to try. All right.
0: We will see you back here then. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.